Welcome to the Hockey Strength Podcast, the official podcast of SCAF, the Strength and Conditioning Association of Professional Hockey. My name is David Rosales, and today I'm joined again by Mike Potenza for episode number six of our SCAF alumni series, along with Mr. Michael Boyle. Coach Boyle is someone I'm sure just about all of us are familiar with. Of course, he's the owner of Mike Boyle Strength Conditioning Massachusetts, uh, a facility that has churned out tons of not even not only NHL players, but even NHL strength coaches. People like Mike Potenza, Kevin Neal, Devin McConnell all worked under Mike at his facility. He's worked for Boston University, Boston Bruins, Boston Red Sox. He's written books. He's been a keynote speaker. He is one of the most influential people in strength conditioning, period. But today, in the spirit of our alumni series, we didn't want to talk about a specific training method or modality. We are much more interested in the stories that Coach Boyle has to share going back decades, learning from great coaches from Jack Parker to Rusty Jones to Al Vermeil and many others, to discussing what separates good coaches from great coaches to communication. Written, spoken, Coach Boyle is a phenomenal presenter. He's a phenomenal writer. I really hope we could capture a different side to Coach Boyle in this interview, and I hope it's something that you all enjoy. So without further ado, here is Mike Potenza and Michael Boyle. Coach Boyle, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, great. Thank you very much for having me. This is fun. I want to start with, uh, I want to quote actually from an article you wrote on strengthcoach.com called My Top Coaching Influences. And you're talking about Jack Parker, Coach Jack Parker, a longtime coach of Boston University. And you said, next to my father, I don't think there's anyone in the world I respect as much as, Co- as, much as Coach Parker. I've had the pleasure of being part of about five or 600 wins as well as two national championships. I learned about coaching. I learned about fairness. I learned about grace under pressure. You learn valuable lessons in all those situations. Could you just speak to how you developed your relationship with Coach Parker and what exactly some of those key important lessons have been that you've learned from him? Well, one, the, the, the big way I developed a relationship with him was time. I was there for 30 years. And, and I think, you know, there's nothing better for developing a relationship with someone than working with them for a really long time. I think the other thing that, that initially helped our relationship was that I, I was into it. I wanted to work with hockey players. I realized when you're at Boston University, I came in sort of, I came in a football guy and I started there as a basketball guy because they were the first, um, Rick Pitino was the first guy to hire me actually, although I never really worked for Rick Pitino. He left before I even started coaching, but I kind of quickly realized that, um, you know, BU was, you know, whatever, the Nebraska or Oklahoma or Notre Dame or whatever of college hockey. And that I needed to figure this thing out quick. And I did. And the guys bought in. And it, it's funny, I'm writing an article right now, uh, Feed the Cats for Hockey, based on Tony Hollis' Feed the Cats idea for basketball. And I'm talking about kind of that time at Boston University, because initially it wasn't smooth. Initially, we were like everybody else, you know, and we skated our guys to death and we had guys who didn't want to lift weights you know i can go back to some of my early guys and they'll laugh if they they probably won't listen to this podcast because they're they haven't been players for a long time but i used to say that you know with peter marshall my job was to guard the back door we had two doors to the weight room and he would generally walk in the front one and wave to me and then as soon as i took my eyes off me go out the back one and be gone and you know I, i went through the the difference for me with everything is because I've been doing this so long, I experienced everything earlier than everybody else. That's really, I always think my major advantage, because even you look at like, you know, Mike Potenza, who's obviously on the call, you know, Mike is, uh, I guess, by NHL standards, an older guy. But, yeah. you know, I look at Mike and think he was like a 97 or 98 intern. And he was a, I look at him as a kid out of Springfield College, you know, I have trouble looking at him and thinking of him as old. But, I look back at me and realize that I have players now. Some of those guys from those early years are older than I am. You know, they're 62 years old. So that's kind of crazy when you think that uh, that's how long it's been. So, but the big thing, the big, the biggest lessons I learned from coach Parker had nothing to do with coach with um, hockey, really, you know, unfortunately we had, you know, and I don't think we had maybe not any more tragedy than anybody else had, but, because we were all there, like Coach Parker, for those that may be less familiar with him, is the winningest coach in one sport at one school in NCAA history. So no one's ever won more games in any sport without leaving that one job. So he was, 
I want to say 890 something games at Boston University. The thing that tells you the most about Coach Parker is, you know, people were like, oh, you know, maybe he'll coach, you know, the first six games of that next year to get to 900. And he was like 890, whatever, 900. Who gives a shit? That was the way he said it. He goes, he said, you think I'm so stuck? I'm like, I got to get to 900 games. You know, I'm going to be the head coach and then resign in October. He was like, that's stupid. You know, and he was one of those guys who just was so, um, I don't know, matter of fact about everything that uh, he made it easy. And he, he wasn't that way. He'd, tell you, he'd be the first to tell you he wasn't that way initially. But as we kind of grew as a program, he really grew as a coach. You know, he retired, I think he was 70. And I was always, I used to tell people, you know, he got a lot better from 50 to 70 as a coach. He really did um, in terms of his ability to, to, to work and to delegate and to let us do our jobs. But the big thing that I started to allude to, sorry, and you'll find that I can be pretty tangential here is um, we had Travis Roy's injury. We had our, our goalie, JP McCurse, had a really uh, severe brain injury, got hit by a car during that, uh, you know, a, a slightly later time period, we lost Mark Bavis on 9-11. Um, we had some real tragedies. And to see, when you talk about the idea of really performing under pressure, Coach Parker's the kind of guy, if the shit hits the fan, you want him on your team. You want him, like, he's going to be your guy. He's going to be the guy you go to and say, hey, something bad happened. And he's going to figure out, not you know, not necessarily because you can't fix those things, but he probably made all of those situations as good as they could have been for all of the people that were involved in that. So I think that's the stuff that I really learned. I mean, I learned a lot about coaching too, but um, the, the, the life lessons there, um, they were unmatched. I don't want to have, I don't want those life lessons again. I'm not happy that I got them, but in a way I am, I'm grateful because I think I'm a better person for having been, you know, kind of with him through those situations. Mike, what about um, in our profession, coaches early on that influenced you in that way from a coaching perspective, I, I guess, and more so than like the X's and O's of strength and conditioning. Were there some for you that you really kind of. Well, you know, I mean, Mike Wojcik was really the first guy. And again, if you're, if you're, if you don't know who Mike Wojcik is, you should probably do some more back study and strength and conditioning because Mike was until he retired, I think the longest tenured guy in the NFL, but I was lucky enough that Mike was also my dorm director at Springfield college. So Mike, in a lot of ways, no one was probably more foundational for me as a coach than Mike was because, you know, I was, I was just a pain in the ass kid, you know, following him around, asking him stupid questions. Uh, and I was that way probably the whole time that I was in college with him. And I, you know, I hung out, I trained with his throwers. I was like an honorary thrower because I wanted to lift and the throwers were the only people who really lifted right. And Mike really knew what he's doing. So I just kind of started following the throwers around and, uh, and working out with them. I was lucky Rusty Jones, who is the second longest tenured guy in the NFL was also at Springfield college at the same time that I was there. And I was lucky enough to be friendly with him and stay friendly with him. Um, I was lucky enough that Johnny Parker was in new England for a while when I was a little bit on the younger side of strength and conditioning. I always think, you know, Coach Parker, the other Coach Parker, Johnny Parker, was the same kind of guy as Jack Parker in terms of just a really good human being and a guy. I still remember we went, I went with Jeff Oliver and Chris Doyle, and we went to watch the Patriots offseason workouts. Parcells was the coach at that time. And, you know, Johnny was like, you got to get permission from Parcells to be here. And Parcells, you know, gave us dispensation. Yes, you guys can enter the weight room and watch the workouts. But we get there. And in typical Johnny fashion, we're walking out of stand in the corner watching. And, you know, it's all the, the, the Patriots, like at that point, I had probably had a little bit of fan in me because they were guys that I had grown up watching. I was probably 30 years old. And all of a sudden, Johnny was like, you guys want to coach? And I looked and I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, he goes, I'm always here by myself. He said, these guys could use some more good strength coaches. Why don't, I, why don't you guys all just you know, whatever, grab a platform, grab a guy, start coaching. So I still remember I was coaching Ted Johnson in the clean. And Ted was like a linebacker, big, strong, you know, I would say not a great Olympic lifter at that time. And, um, and we're just kind of working on stuff, talking on things. But the thing that Johnny did, which amazed me, is he came up to Ted after the sets were over. And he was like, Ted, what did Mike tell you that I don't tell you? He said, you know, how, how can your experience with Mike help make me a better coach. And I remember standing there thinking, 
are you kidding me? Like this guy's maybe the best guy in the history of the national football league. And one, he just let us coach his athletes. And two, he just asked his athlete what he could learn from their brief experience with us. So, you know, all that stuff made me a way better coach. Cause it made me like, now I'm so hands off. Like if you came to my boil strength and conditioning, you'd be like, there's an old guy that walks around. I don't know if he's the janitor or like the maintenance guy or what he is, but he's always like fixing stuff, picking things up off the floor, cleaning up because I don't coach. I try to not coach. I, you know, I let my coaches coach these. I got great young guys working and I coach if I need to, I coach if it's busy, I coach if there's a problem, but in general, uh, I try, there's a, a quote I love is lead follower, get out of the way. And, you know, I've gotten to the point where I'm doing a lot of getting out of the way so that other people can get better. That's the same story Matt Nickel told me when he visited Johnny in San Francisco, which is funny. Like Matt went to go watch a workout and he, he Johnny puts him in as into coaching. And that's like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? But that, yeah, special you know, guy. Very I haven't talked guy. to Johnny in a while, but I've stayed, I've stayed friendly with Johnny. Al Vermeil the same way. Al came to do a talk at, um, at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. Probably again, I'm going to say late 90s. Maybe. Yeah, maybe I, I was there. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. but the best part about Al, I pick Al up at the airport. <clears throat> I'm going to take him to my house to have dinner. He says, can we go by the facility first? I'm like, Sure, we can go by the facility first. I didn't, at that point, I didn't really know him that well. So I bring him in, I'm kind of showing him around. And all of a sudden he's like, can I coach for a bit? And I was like, sure, you can coach as long as you want. I said, you got more rings than anybody in the history of the sport. Like you want to do some coaching. So he literally, like he just kind of picks out a platform and a kid and he starts coaching. And he coached me, it was like two hours. I'm like, I, I coached my, my wife's, uh, you know, she made dinner. She's kind of waiting for us. We got to, we got to get out of here. We got to go. And he was legit like disappointed that he couldn't stay with the kids and continue coaching. So, I mean, in all of those situations, um, you know, I've been exposed to wonderful people. I could give you names and you said, you know, stuff you want cut out. I won't say the names, but I've also watched other people be incredible assholes, incredibly rude, incredibly dismissive to people. And I realized Okay, you know, I know I could make you a list of people I'd never wanted to be like, and I could make you a list of people that I really did want to be like. And, you know, they say you learn something from everybody, right? I learned from some of those other guys, like, okay, I never want to be that guy. I never want to be that asshole who belittles somebody at a conference. I never want to be that asshole who tries to belittle another speaker. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and so I've, I've been very lucky over the course of the time that I've been doing this, because I've had lots of good lessons, lots of good teachers. Sorry for the short pause, my dear listener. We decided to cut the beginning of the next question for confidentiality reasons. So sorry for the short commercial break, and we are back into the action and media res. Brad, like I said, Mike was literally an intern from Springfield college and a kid that I knew right away. Like I said, this kid's gifted. I remember he could work with our pro guys. He was great. I was like, this guy's going to be good. Um, you know, Kevin, the same way Kevin started helping me with the women's team. And, um, in, oh, I don't even know, probably sometime after 2010, he volunteered. He just sent me an email on this. This is a good lesson for people that want to be, um, you know, well, you want to be successful in anything, but it, get out and reach out to people. But like, I, I, sold Kevin and Mike. I was like, this is the guy you want. This is a guy that's going to be, you know, and Mike, I think was mature enough. Mike Potenza at that time to realize that a really smart assistant was a really good thing, not a really bad thing. I think some people are get intimidated. And I told him, I said, this kid's really smart. He's really smart with computers. He's just really smart in general. He's smart with anatomy. He's smart with all kinds of stuff. I will. Um, so, and I don't mean to make it sound cocky in that way, but I just feel like, you know, like a lot of these guys, like, I'd have trouble. My contemporaries, like Lauren Goldenberg is my contemporary. There's not that many guys that are 60 plus years old that at some point were in the NHL. And I, I mean, I have to, I, it's like Peter twist, Lauren, me. Um, I don't even know who else was actually, um, you know, Pete Friesen might've been. Pete was there. Uh, Doug McKinney. Yeah. yeah. Doug there. McKinney. Was a you know, Springfield Doug, guy. He's Springfield. Right. One of my friends from college actually used to work together. Yeah. And we, I, I get Doug a, job in a bar with me as a bouncer when he was looking for work back in the old days. So, and Doug and 
Rusty Jones. Actually, Doug is with Rusty now in Indianapolis. And Doug, Rusty was Doug's high school football coach or one of Doug's high school football coaches. Yeah. So, but there just weren't that many people that were even attempting to do this at that time. And to be honest, the people at the time I was starting out with the Bruins, yeah, I don't think there were a lot of great people. I think there were a lot of people like me who were trying to figure it out. Maybe the guy who, the guy who had it figured out in all honesty, he had it figured out a long time ago was Jack Blatherwick and Jack probably, I'm going to say Jack's in his seventies now. And I remember Ben Smith, maybe one of my first couple of years at BU saying, uh, we went out to Minnesota and we, we, we stayed in Jack's house and we watched, they used to train, they called it the dungeon. They had a weight room that was under the stands at the old Minnesota football stadium. And I always say Jack being the brilliant guy that he was, there were two groups that could train in his weight room, men's ice hockey and women's gymnastics. And I was like, this guy's smarter than I thought he was. But, uh, you know, we went down there and it's funny, like now, the, you know, these kids, you know, Lance Pitlick was there, whose kid is now playing in the NHL, Tommy Chorsky, you know, they had some, some of their guys training and uh, we were able to watch and talk. And Jack was, Jack was into overspeed and sprinting and, you know, lower body and plyometrics. And I mean, he was probably a good decade ahead of the pack at that point in time. And, I still remember we stayed in his, we stayed in the basement of his house because he lived at that time. He lived in a house on a busy street and he realized that he didn't like the noise. So he moved into the basement. So we just lived in the basement for like three days of his house and we drank cold spring lager and we just talked about philosophy. You know, why, do, why were we doing what we were doing at BU? Why did we clean and why did he not clean? You know, why was he using the leg press and we weren't using the leg press? And Jack was a brilliant coach. And the one thing he said, because Ben, so it was me, Ben Smith and Jack. And Jack said to Ben, he was like, oh, Ben, I'd be doing exactly what Mike was doing if I was a strength coach. He said, but I'm a hockey coach. He said, you know, there's a lot of times these guys lift a lot without me. He said, so I like them to load up the leg press so they can get heavy lower body work and I don't have to worry about what's going on down here. He said, I don't want them doing cleans without me there to watch them. You know, there were just things that you'd Little look at. Little nuggets of information. You yeah, can't. Like, you can't exactly. Up. So smart, right, yeah. at that time. And so far ahead of everybody else. And I was just one of those guys, like, I was like, just, I felt like, okay, I'm just, I, I'm catching up. I'm understanding what this guy is saying. And at that time, I mean, I had been accused of a football, being a football guy. And that was what I was. But, and that's what I'm writing in this Feed the Cats article. The best thing I could have been at that time was a football guy, because this is what's interesting. A lot of the teams at that time, when I'm saying there weren't many strength coaches, there weren't. But there were a lot of physiologists, a guy named Howie Wenger, who I've never met. But Howie Wenger was hugely influential at that time. He was an exercise physiologist. Teams, all every team had a physiologist. And most of them that didn't have weight rooms had bikes. And they were all doing VO2 testing. And they were all into the aerobic thing. And we went the total opposite way. And I was, I was writing this in the Feed the Cats article. But I'll share it here on the podcast because I don't think as many people will hear it. But... In the early 90s at some point, might even have been late 80s, I forget. Uh, it was probably late 80s, actually. Um, you know, we were doing testing. And I remember we did, it was either a mile or a mile and a half run. I don't know what it was, but it was some kind of a, you know, quote unquote distance run. And at that time, we had five studs, guys who were, you know, NHL draft picks, supposed to make the Olympic team, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I still remember that basically the guys that finished like 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 were those five studs. They really struggled in that, you know, whatever mile, mile and a half run, whatever it was we did. I think it was a mile at that point in time. And the kid that won, um, I think was a walk-on kid, crushed everybody, you know, like beat some kids by like a half lap. And I remembered my epiphany was sitting there thinking, okay, there's basically, if I analyze the data, which at that time I was doing, there's two things to understand. One, my best guys are not very fit by this particular standard, right? And my least talented guy is the best at this. Then I looked at my other data, my 10 yard sprint data and my vertical jump data. My five studs were one through five in those things. And I kind of looked at it and I said, okay, um, the, what the NHL guys would tell me to do is train all of my good players like my bad players. And what I did is I looked the other way and said, wait a second, I, I think 
I need to train these other guys to be like these five. Like I need guys that are, you know, guys with 30 inch vertical jumps and I need guys that can sprint and I need, you know, that those are the guys that are game changers. They're, they're the best players on our team. They're getting drafted by NHL teams and they don't have great aerobic capacity. So, um, you know, I went sort of, if you think of the frost poem, I took the, lo- the road less traveled at that point in time. And, uh, and that has made all the difference, I think, is what the, the line in the poem says. You didn't think you'd be getting Robert Frost quotes in this thing. <laughs> I, love, I love the literary references. I love it. <laughs> Mike, what about NHL coaches? Like, you had um, some amazing ones in Boston, right? Some Hall of Fame coaches like Pat Burns, right? So with them, did you have those, like, great teachable moments like you had with Jack? To be truthful, no, I didn't. Well, I mean, Pat was the only one. I, I I grew to really like Pat. And I would say that most of the other guys that were there, um, I will just say probably over time, I wasn't as impressed with them, you know, either as XNO people or as strength and conditioning people. Pat Pat was really interesting in terms of uh, Pat and Jacques LaPeria were there at the same time, which was great. And, uh, you know, Pat, that was, it was actually Joe's rookie year. And, the first year I was with Pat, Pat was just, you know, conventional, get me VO2 numbers. I know that I understand that I want VO2 numbers. And I remember saying to him, well, can we do it on a treadmill rather than a bike? I'd rather these guys run. I think part of the groin problem that, you know, historically we're having is that these guys ride the bike too much. He was like, I don't care. He said, I just want a VO2 number. Give me a VO2 number. And so we did VO2 tests on the treadmill and we gave him the numbers and he was happy. You know, he'd be able to say, this guy's in good shape. This guy's not in good shape. And then the next year, I, you know, I said, do I have to do that again? He goes, I don't give a shit what you do. Do whatever you want. Because at that point, you know, even in a, in a year, like he had realized, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. And he'll be able to tell me if somebody's in shape or out of shape or what they need to do. But the biggest thing with Pat is he was not afraid of players. And that, like, I, I still have my favorite Pat Burns line. And it was with Jason Allison. He was giving Jason Allison a hard time about not lifting. And he basically looked at Allie and he goes, Hey, Allie, I've been effing shot at. I'm not afraid of you. Because <laughs> he, if you don't know Pat Burns' history, he was a cop was, in Montreal yeah, yeah. prior to uh, being a coach. And even while he was a junior coach, he was still a police officer and he was involved, you know, they say in any way with, you know, you know, investigating biker gangs and all these things. So he, he'd seen some stuff that probably the average coach has never seen in their lifetime. And that made him very, you know, kind of matter of fact about things. So they were, uh, he and Jacques, I love Jacques LaPeria too. He was just a, just a great guy to be around, you know, a, a good, really simple. I remember him telling, used to yell, Ray Bork used to make some incredible plays, diving plays, you know, diving with his stick, knocking pucks off guys' sticks. And LaPeria was the first coach that ever coached him was like, do not lay down. You're no good to me laying down, stay off the ice. And everybody in the whole place just looked and was like, Shit! Somebody just coached Ray. But here was a guy, another French Canadian guy who had been a Hall of Fame defenseman in and of himself, and he was just very like, "Hey, Pat." He said, "I used to love Pat all the time." He'd look at guys. He'd hold the, he'd hold the jersey up, and he'd be like, "If you can read these, you don't hit the guy." Do you understand? You know, it was like so simple. You know, because you'd get guys who just you know staple somebody to the boards from behind. You know, get a five minute major, and he'd be like, "He's like, you guys are stupid." He was like, they put these big numbers on the back of the guys. If you can read that, you're not supposed to hit them. And, you know, there was just so much basic stuff like that. My son always tells me I don't know anything about hockey, but I really do because I've spent, I figured out that I've watched at least a thousand games live over the course of my career. And I've been around, like, like you said, Mike, some really, really good coaches. And, um, and it's a, in some ways, it's still a really simple game. You know, I just sent my kids a, a video of Chris Kreider, got a hat trick last night. And the guy was talking about, you know, this is what happens when you go to the net with your stick on the ice. And literally Kreider's just on one of them. He's got like two seconds on the far post by himself. Like he misses it once and he still gets the goal because he was standing there in the right place with his stick in the right place. And it's, uh, it can be very simple. The, the Boyle coaching tree is very much like Bill Walsh in the NFL and, and, and how you see all these strength coaches who are placed in different places. But, you know, the, the funny part, too, now is like you have coached as athletes at BU 
I think we talked about it a, a couple uh, about a month ago when we connected last, but what nine coaches are in the NHL where their assistants or heads that have been, that have worked with you as athletes. Talk about yeah, at least that many player development directors. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, if you go to player develop, player development directors, you know, Richard Park, Chris Clark, um, now guys are up to GM, like, you know, Billy Garen's a GM. Yeah. Jenahan's a GM. Cam's a president. You yeah. know, it's like. But but the whole uh, thing has so changed. Got, you know, we've got four either GMs or presidents from our group. You know, not to mention, you know, like I said, head, you know, Heinze and David Quinn and. Right, right. Jay Pandolfo, Joe Sacco. Like, I, you know, I, there's too many guys. I Somebody said to me one time, we were at a Bruins game. They said, oh, you must know a lot of the players. I'm like, I, I in this particular game, I know more coaches than players. <laughs> but that's helped with the evolution of what we can do now in hockey, though. Because, you know, those younger coaches like Heinze, Pando, and Joe Sacco, and even Quinny, like, they grew up with your influence or, or the, the training influence in, in college. So now it's part of their DNA. It's not like you're influencing them on a – de-influencing them on a VO2 test. You know, they know they have somewhat of a thought process and philosophy on how they want to do things in the gym. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways you do look, you, know, you look at it and think, you know, that's been a huge change over time. And, you know, and it's probably the same, you know, for kids that, you know, whatever guys, you know, the, you know, the Mike Eves of the world and guys like that, you know, who came out of Wisconsin. There's, there's more and more guys who grew up in what we would probably call the modern era, you know, not the, I mean, when I first started with the Bruins, I still remember my first Bruins game. And this is something that, I mean, probably doesn't need to be edited out, but I remember walking down in the locker room and the general manager, the assistant general manager and the head coach were all drinking a beer. By the time I got down from like the, the kind of uh, halo area where we were allowed to watch the game, you know, they were already in the cooler drinking and, you know, guys were in there and it, I just, I was a you know college guy and probably just maybe just 30 years old. And I remember looking thinking, what is going on here? Like how, and I remember going, Mike Milby was the head coach at that time. And I went to Mike and I said, Mike, I said, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff flying around my head. I said, but the number one thing flying around my head is that the attempt at rehydration with a diuretic fluid is scientifically not very good. I said, so we need to just think that part of it through better in terms of what we're going to give the players post game. Yeah. <laughs> but as Mike, you're telling him, this was cigarette smoke in your face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Alan, what are you still smoking when we were in the new garden? Yeah. So I don't remember what year it was, but the first year the new garden opened, it was a smoke free building and he was still smoking and getting like, if you can imagine Al running around with like just his like, socks and a guard belt on no shirt cigarette and a security guard like chasing him yelling at him and he's opening a fire door to stick his head out to smoke a cigarette i mean this was i mean that was not that long ago shift gears a bit coach boyle something i really admire about you is your ability to change your mind on something and to say hey something we did two or three years ago i was wrong and we're now doing this um and this came up with pete friesen as well i, I like something that he said uh, that was 50% of what we know is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. And I'm wondering, one, what your process is to change your mind, and two, how you then kind of test new ideas. Like, let's say you hear something from a, a colleague. How do you then, like, implement it to test it and see if it'll work for your situation? Well, one, I'm going to go back and say, so that's a classic Pete Friesen line because it's actually a uh, Thomas Myers line. But I remember seeing the first time I ever saw Pete present, and I keep, I still have the slide in my presentation. It says, uh, I think it says something to the effect after three months, it was my idea. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I love Pete. Pete's one of my favorite guys in the field. I've, I've been lucky to know him for a long time, but, uh, and it's funny, his son, Jack is a PT with the Patriots now. So, you know, you talk about the, the tree continuing to grow, but I remember Jack, Jack came up and stayed with us in the summer one time, you know, Pete was like, you know, he thinks maybe he wants to be in strength and conditioning or whatever. And he came up and, you know, stayed at the house and, hung out. So it's, uh, you know, it's interesting, but I guess the way, how do you tell, you just do it. You just test it. You put it in the program and you try it. I think that's how you figure it out because if I've thought about it, generally, if I've thought about it, it means that if from one or two separate places, I've gotten kind of the same input. And I remember that was with talk about, okay. And I'll give Kevin Neal the credit here because I think it was Kevin Neal and Cressy 
that were the first ones who were talking about PRI. And I remember thinking, okay, Kevin's smart, Cressy's smart. Both guys are spending a lot of time talking about this whole PRI idea. I need to look into PRI. And so I, you know, I looked into PRI. Then it was like, okay, uh, we brought Michael Mullen in to talk to us about PRI. Then it was like, okay, let's start throwing some of this PRI stuff into the workouts and see, um, you know, I always think it's like, you know, throw some shit against the wall and see what sticks. Uh, that's kind of the way that we would do it, particularly knowing that it's it's not dangerous. I'm not doing something where I'm thinking, wow, somebody might get hurt doing this or there might be some damage done. Otherwise, it's just, hey, let's see. Because one of the things I like to see too is how do the athletes receive it? I always used to say like athletes will tell you like there's like two versions of this sucks. One version of this sucks is it sucks. It's stupid. It's a waste of time. One version of this sucks is, wow, that was really hard. And I really liked it and we should do that more. And you have to be able to figure out which version of this sucks did you just get from your guys? You know, like, what are you, what are you getting? So, but I think you just kind of, you implement, you throw it in there, you, you play with it for a while and then you see, and we do that a lot in programming, particularly if someone says, if someone says, I want to try this, I'm like, okay, try it, put it in the program. See how athletes respond to it. See, you know, does, I always say, you know, I've said a lot of times, good in theory, bad in practice. Sometimes you'll see something and think that was a really, really good idea. But kind of at the end of that idea, you think that didn't work the way that I wanted it to work at all. And I probably, you know, we probably can't do that for whatever the reason was, but I think you have to be able to adapt. You have to be able to change your mind. You need to be able to think, um, and I've said this numerous times, but it, if your program looks a lot like it did 10 years ago, either you were really good 10 years ago or you suck now. Like it's, it's one or the other. And I think that's the stuff that you have to look at. And sometimes I look back and think we were, I mean, we were light years ahead of people in the late eighties, early nineties. I mean, we were doing stuff that other, you know, we had, I mean, Mike will tell you, we were doing heart rate monitor intervals on the track with our guys in uh, you know, pre Mike Boyle strength and conditioning. So at some point in the nineties, we had all of our guys with heart rate monitors on, you see if it works, you know, you kind of run it through a couple of cycles of training and then you see, okay, does this stick? Does this not stick? And I actually know, I was talking about the fact that if you were, you know, if you're still doing the same program and I think that's a really big test for you to be able to look and think, okay, where are we now? And in some ways, as this is what I was saying before, we were way ahead. We were doing stuff that was way ahead of what a lot of people were doing. And then I look at now, like last summer, we didn't really use our heart rate monitors that much. And that was because kind of pro guys, I got lazy. The off season was too long. I didn't, I didn't want to charge guys again to get a new heart rate monitor. And I'm like, next summer, I got to make sure everybody has their monitor on. I got to make sure we go back to heart rate monitor conditioning. So I try to make my notes too about things that, you know, what do we need to go back to like this summer or summer wasn't summer. This off season was bizarre in terms of it was about, it could have been in some cases three times longer than the normal off season. So we had guy, a guy like Jack Eichel who didn't make the playoffs. Um, I think we were training, you know, June, July, August, September, October, you know, he would in and out, went back to Buffalo. But um, I think our last guy left in uh, maybe in December. Uh, who was going like to an AHL camp. And so you're talking about guys, you know, being there from June to December. And I actually texted a lot of them and apologized. I said, Hey, thanks for hanging in there with us. Cause we weren't prepared for it to be that long. That's one of the things we're going to do at our staff meeting next week is, is try to sort of physically prepare for longer periods. Cause we're not, it's almost like, you know, when do you say, okay, let's take a week off and start over because that's kind of what you need to do because you don't have like a, 36 week off season program built out for somebody, but suddenly you, you know, you get stuck with that and you're thinking, you know, how do I, how do I handle that? What are some of the, uh, I guess the big, <clears throat> the big aha moments for your, from your programming, Mike, like there's, there's times that this probably the foundation is still the same. You're still going to, you know, do core work. You're still going to work on speed, you know, both linear and lateral, you're still going to train, but as you go through your process of <clears throat> creating a new program, it's not like you're scrapping everything that was foundational and now you're starting to do, you know, 
circuits or whatever to you know whatever whatever it is that you scrap and throw out but you've learned over the years when you say big aha moments it's funny so i rewrote functional training for sports in 2016 i think i originally wrote it in 2004 the guy who was the editor that i worked with ted miller really good guy from human kinetics came to me and said i really think this book needs to be updated and I have to admit, I, I probably didn't really look at the book much after I wrote it. And I thought, it doesn't need to be updated. It's fine. Like, what's the big deal? And then I went in and he, and he God bless Ted, being the, the diplomat that he was, he said, I would just like you to, to skim through the book. And if you don't think it needs to be updated, then I won't bother you about it anymore. And I skimmed through the book and I called him back and I was like, Ted, that book sucks. Who wrote that? Like, that's awful. You know? And he laughed. And I was like, you got me. Like, I don't really want to rewrite this book, but I'm going to rewrite this book because in the book, I said, don't static stretch because it will reduce power. In the book, we didn't mention foam rolling. In the book, we did tons of rotational core, flexion-based core things that I wouldn't. So when you start thinking about the big aha moments, um, soft tissue work was a big aha moment. Realizing that that flexibility played into long-term injury was a big aha moment. Hearing Stuart McGill talk and, and really understanding core was a big aha moment. And, and then at some point, and Jeff Oliver gets the credit for this, although he, Ollie in his typical uh, bad memory fashion does not remember that he was even involved in the conversation, but he had asked me one time, if we could test single leg strength, would I, would I just, you know, we had gotten, gotten rid of back squats. We had gone to front squats and he was like, if you could test one leg strength, would you just get rid of front squat? And I said, yeah, I think I would. And then I thought about, you know, much like you were talking about, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's a situation, David, where you say, okay, let's try this. So I started trying to develop some testing for uh, my BU guys unilaterally. And we just started testing rear elevated split squat. And the guy that actually initiated that idea of all people, Joe DeFranco, if you talk about a guy who you, who would have thought your unilateral idea would come out of Joe, uh, who was as much of a like bilateral, go heavier, go home guy as there could have been at that time. But I saw a video of one of his guys. It probably wasn't even a video. I think it was a picture. It might've been pre-video, but um, doing split squats with 120 dumbbells. And I started thinking, wow, that's a lot of weight. That's like 240 pounds on one leg. And, uh, and I just thought, I'm going to, you know, because the good thing about it, college is great, Mike, and you know, because you've been in college, you have so much more time and you can just try stuff. Like you can just do whatever you want. Like, okay, I'm going to try this for five weeks. And as long as it isn't like way off the grid, you know, it's not going to hurt you. So we just really tried this heavy unilateral emphasis and it was crazy. Like all of a sudden, and, and I had done the research, quote unquote, we had, uh, we had one RM front squats on everybody. And then we did um, rear foot elevated split squat, like RM tests at that time, uh, back split squat with a barbell. And everybody could back split squat what they could front squat. Every single guy was within five pounds. And I, you know, and that was when it started to, and it's, this is a Robbie Bork thing. Uh, Robbie, do you know, you, do you know, Robbie, were you ever around Robbie? Yeah. So Robbie is another really like kind of like Kevin Neald guy, like super smart, just like, like takes in a massive amount of information. And I started talking about bilateral deficit. I said, you know, one of the things we found out when we started doing this unilateral training is we're using way heavier loads than we ever envisioned using and much heavier than we were doing bilaterally. And Robbie literally sends me a thing. He said, yeah, you know, that Comey book that's on your desk, the green one, if you look on page, whatever, 85, you'll see the bilateral deficit stuff's right in there. It's been in there for a really, and it was literally like Comey research from the nineties or something like that. You know, it was already in the book. It was already there. And then you look at like what Devin did. Devin took my stuff and like put it on, you know, I hate to say on steroids because that sounds like he was cheating, but I don't know a better description of how you like, how you blow that idea up. But he started doing hand assisted split squats. And all of a sudden he's sending me videos of guys doing 500 pounds on one leg. Yeah. I work for Devin and this, the heaviest guy did the summer I was there was 535 pounds on yeah. one leg. And that was the kid. He was going to intern actually last summer. He got blown out because of COVID. I can't think of his name, but I have the video of that kid and he does five something and it looks like a hundred. Do you mean like, it's like down and up? No, you know, there was none of the horrendous, like, 
straining that you would see if you were thinking, okay, I had a guy attempt a thousand pound squat. Like not that you would do that, but I mean, anybody that's watched powerlifting knows kind of what the strain of that looks like. And this kid simply goes like Doo -doo, down up, like, like nothing. And so I think all of those, um, I don't know if any of them one moment was like, oh my God, but you know, Tony Hall, the sprint thing, right? Even, you know, two years ago, whatever, three years ago, just listening to Tony talk and thinking like, geez, you know, we really, based on what he's saying, we really don't do speed work because, you know, we don't time our guys. We time our guys a couple times a year. You know, they just so, yeah, I feel it's like, in there, but it's not, yeah, you're dedicating like, so much like more sport interest. Sort of, you know, it's like, yeah, we kind of, I would say, we used to run a lot and we'd even run kind of fast a lot. And I'm not sure how much we sprinted, <laughs> whereas now we sprint and we sprint a lot. So I think to me, like if you're not evolving, if you're not having, you know, an epiphany every couple of years where you go, oh my God, what was I thinking? Then you're not, you're not doing your work. You're no longer good at your job. You're no longer effective. If you're comfortably sitting there thinking, I got it all figured out, then you got a really big problem. I remember Mark Verstegen at a, uh, at a conference one time, he said, hey, if any of you guys sitting out there think you know all the answers, he said, can you stay after? He said, because I got a lot of questions for you. Yeah. <laughs> that that concept too, Mike, that you will, yet another one that you've evolved your philosophy to with, you know, for being uh, 35, 30 years, plus years in the businesses of now you're sprinting and you're, you're emphasizing speed and your timing because now it means more. It, it, it really helped. I know me with this, such a, you talked about a long off season. We had a crazy off season, you know, in terms of length, right? But for tissue tolerance and us getting back and, you know, horny coaches when they want their players back and they want to start right away, it became super effective for us. You know, not that we said, I said, guys, you got to time every sprint, but we need to run fast because we need some sort of tissue tolerance for a basis of going into when we skate, you know, and then we'll build up on the ice with our, with our true you know, sprint work, you know, JB Marin's article about uh, sprinting as a vaccine. If yeah. you haven't read it, you should read it. You know, JB is another, you know, a brilliant research guy who's also in the trenches uh, coaching, but he talked about the idea that sprinting may be in effect vaccinating and he, they're looking more at soccer um, guys against hamstring injuries, but I think it's the same with groins for hockey. You know, if you're, and this is what I'm going to finish up that uh, feed the cats article with. Like if I was coaching hockey right now, if I was a hockey strength and conditioning coach, they'd be on ice speed day, two days a week. And we'd be timing, you know, we'd be timing gold to blue, or maybe I might even be blue to blue at this point so that I could get some more flying sprint in, um, you know, and then I'd have to redevelop some norms and, you know, blue to blue is not as good because it's not consistent in every rank. Whereas gold to blue is relatively consistent. It's almost always like 62 feet or something like that, you know, cause the offensive zone has to be the same. Uh, it's Matt price does a hell of a job of, of kind of looking at that gold to far blue at, or gold to red as a, as kind of a, an assessment, like, okay, where are you accumulating your speed? Are you great from gold to hash or do you take time? Are you, you a big engine who takes time and, then you get up to seven meters, eight meters per second closer to the center center ice. Or can you get there like Patty Marlowe in three steps? So it's pretty neat to, to look at it that way. Whereas we haven't really looked at it that way for skating. No, I think we looked, one of the things I said in the article was that we were very much, you know, we were still in the either you have it or you don't, you can't teach speed. And they used to, you could teach skating, you could teach edge work, but you couldn't make somebody faster. But I looked at it and, you know, this again goes back to the, um, you know, kind of the, the Sean McGeckern, Jay Pandolfo, Joe Sacco, guys, a player era, Sean Bates. But at one point, I think we had six or seven guys win their team competition when they used to. And again, this may even predate you, Mike, but they used to have the fastest skater competition and the skills competition. And it was done where they actually arrove at the fastest skater because every team had a contest and then every team sent their representative to the all-star game. So strangely enough, Mike Sullivan, of the Pittsburgh Penguins fame came in second twice to Mike Gartner. He was runner up two years in a row when he was at Calgary. And in that same like time period, you know, Sean McGeckman won his team. Sean Bates won his team. I think Joe Sacco won his team. We had, we had five Jay Pandolfo, I think won his team uh, when he was in Albany in the AHL. We had a whole bunch of our guys 
who were winning team competitions and beating all these European guys who were supposed to be such great skaters. Um, because we were, you know, at that time, I would say we were a much more sprint dominant program than everybody else was. But then I look at, like I said, that, you know, Tony Holler's stuff, you know, the feed the cat stuff is what we were doing on steroids again. You know, it's, it's taking the ideas of us just trying to run fast and really putting some quantification to it in terms of looking at the, you know, really looking at the numbers and being able to say, like I said, and that's, I'd be doing that two days a week and I'd be, you know, I mean, I don't, can you guys get, you must get GPS data right now on uh, like how fast guys, you know, I'd be looking at the same thing they're looking at in soccer. How many guys in the team hit above, you know, whatever that number is, because if you look at like McDavid, I think McDavid has been like Usain Bolt level, you know, 25 miles yeah. an hour or something. Yeah, he's crazy. He's fast. And, you know, I'd be looking at that and thinking, okay, everybody, you know, everyone who doesn't, get 90% of their top speed in the course of a game is doing three sprints in, you know, in the day, in the days in between, you know, it's much like we used to do, you know, I was talking about this in the article too. We, you know, we, a lot of our conditioning was done by guys who didn't play. Like I didn't, you know, at BU, we didn't condition our guys that played because I felt like, Hey, if you play, that should be a really good hard conditioning workout for you. You don't need more conditioning. If you don't play, you need a really good hard conditioning workout because you just sat upstairs and, that, you know, and the difference is we don't want that to be, you know, the old bag skate idea. Be, you know, we want it to be, again, sprint dominant and, and really anaerobic where you're looking at a guy and saying, hey, minimally, we're getting his heart rate back down under 120 beats a minute, you know, before we do anything. So it's important to uh, we, we talk, David and I have been on this call. This is what our fifth, David, I think, and um, with this alumni series, but you you have to engage with your coach too and know what their system is if it's a coach who wants to just do battle drills you're not going to get your sprint work in but there's still coaches out there who think all right i want to work on speed today and they're going to run a drill for 35 seconds so it's like no we gotta it's you we're, we're coaching the co coaches in a way and truly trying to make it speed work you know and that's one of the cool things that i've been able to do in my time in san jose is connect with the coaches i think i'm on my fourth right now so it, but it's to say hey we need a speed day we've we've done a battle work we've done flow drills we've done an easy day that's more like skills and aerobic but we can't just use the game as our speed day right <laughs> like that doesn't that's not effective long term so yeah it's well, an important if, point to think in the planning if a good percentage of guys don't get to top speed you know you look at some of your d like some of your d may never get to top speed yeah in a, depending on you know you gotta you know you know, a stay at home kind of guy, uh, you know, he may never get the kind of speed that you want him to get during the course of the game. And you need to, you know, you need to find a way to, to literally like Tony talks about feeding the cats, you know, you need to feed that stimulus into these guys at times when it's going to be effective. And you need to, like I said, coach education, coach Parker used to always say that, you know, my job was to coach the coaches. And I was just writing in this article, like I can remember every time we hired a new assistant coach, one at first they were surprised that I was in the staff meetings and I think they looked and thought like, you know, why is he here? Then they were really surprised that I talked during the staff meetings and that I would disagree and that I would make my point of view known. And then they were horrified that coach Parker would agree with me. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, a new assistant, I can remember sitting there watching these guys and, you know, like as the meeting went on, they were just like, what the, you know, he's listening to this guy. Like not only is the guy here and talking, but coach is listening to him. The football guy. Yeah, the football guy. But, you know, and that's where I always said Coach Parker was, I always say he should have been a lawyer. He was a brilliant guy, a brilliant, like he could argue, he'd he'd take the opposite viewpoint and argue with you. I can, I can still, I still remember this like it was yesterday. Dave Silk was our assistant coach and we had lost to somebody on the weekend and Dave Silk was fuming and he's looking at Coach Parker and he's like, you know, we got to go no pucks today. You know, we sucked. We didn't compete. You know, we're out of shape. And and I'm sitting there watching the whole thing. And I love Dave. Like, Dave's a great guy. Really great guy. And I was like, I completely disagree. And he's like, what are you talking about? You completely disagree. I'm like, I said, you know, and he was like, our guys, you know, they they, they, they have no will. They have no, you know, the whole typical, typical coaching stuff that you hear, right? And I looked at him. I said, okay, two weeks ago, we were having this conversation. And we loved our guys. And we loved our conditioning. And we loved our compete level. I said, what could possibly have gone on the last two weeks 
that suddenly made our guys into these gutless wonders who don't want to compete anymore. And they got out of shape. I said, how did that happen? I said, I'm going to tell you this, you know, either all of our guys underwent some sort of crazy personality change during this two week period, or they're tired. And, and coach Parker was like, he was kind of stuck between the two of us, not knowing what to do. And I just, and I still remember we were going to Maine. We we're going to go to Maine and play two games. I saw, I said, I'm just telling you right now, if we do what you guys want to do, we're going to go to Maine. We're going to get swept and we're going to be out of the tournament because we needed to win both games against Maine to, to guarantee our spot in the NCAA tournament. And he looked at me and he was kind of like, he just nodded his head, didn't really say anything. And then he went in and told the guys that just go lift. And we weren't going on the ice that day. We went up to Maine and won two and went on. I, I don't, won't say we won the NCAA championship that year because I have no idea what year it was, but I know we made the tournament. And we had a lot of those conversations because it's so, like coaches love to go to that. You know, we didn't have the will. We were out of shape, blah, blah, blah. Like that's the, that's number one default. When I look at it now, I think number one default should be we're tired. Our guys are tired, you know, particularly, you know, you hate to say college, not like your college guys are really, you know, super college students or anything like that, but they still got to get up. They still got to go to class. They still, there's a lot of shit dragging on them, you know, during the course of a week besides just those, those two weekend games. And, um, you know, we, well, you remember, cause you were around it. We just started putting a lot of emphasis with our guys on sleep, on rest, on breakfast. We would make our guys get up and eat breakfast and then let them go back to sleep. You know, we'd have nine o'clock breakfast and guys would be like, I want to sleep. I, you know, we'd be like, Oh, go back to sleep. I don't care. I just want you to be there at nine o'clock. I want to watch you eat breakfast and then you can go back to sleep again. And then we'll see you again at 12 and eat lunch. And you know, we were literally like, we should have been the fattest team in hockey, but we weren't because we wouldn't, you know, we never missed a meal. And never were like, we were like, we never, we're never missing a meal. We were never going to miss a meal. We were never going to miss a lift. And coach Parker again was unbelievable that way. Cause he got to the point where he was willingly giving up practice time. He'd always look and think, you know, when we talk about that stuff, he'd be like, yeah, you know, we need two days off. We'll take Sunday off. We'll just lift Monday. We won't skate. And that got to be very standard for us. And it was standard after a bad performance, you, you know, with coach Parker, he'd look at me, he goes, we need two days off. You know, we sucked. We need two days off. You know, that's how, that's how smart he got and how well he got it. And why, like, if you look, I mean, I started looking at the numbers and actually I'm going to tell you the numbers right now, because I just, I've been writing this article, but it's actually pretty crazy. Um, you know, when, when you look at it, so, um, Between like uh, 90 and 2012, we made the NCAA tournament 17 times, played in eight frozen fours, four national championships with two wins. <laughs> that was a pretty good run. You know, that was, a, that was as good a run probably as any college. BC might have equaled that run in all honesty, as much as I hate to say the dreaded two-letter word, but, um, you know, they had a really good run kind of after us in the later 2000s, and I think maybe won three championships. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's so much of it is being, because I always say this, you are as good in strength and conditioning as who you work for. And you're in good in strength, as good in strength and conditioning as who you work with. Yeah. And for is more important than with, because, you know, you could have really good players to work with, but if you don't have a coach who's going to let you do your job, you're not going to be effective. But like with us at BU, we were able to really combine those two things in terms of, you know, we had, I mean, you know, we just had a freaking wagon load of players. Um, you know, we did a really good job recruiting during that time period. And, uh, and then we had a head coach who was super supportive of what we were trying to do. And, you know, when I mean, you look at those guys, you know, the Kachuks and the Amontes and Greers and, you know, I mean, there, there were just so many guys from that time period that went on to be, the, the bigger thing is the guys that went on to just be good NHL players, not great NHL players. You know, you look at the Mike Sullivan's world. Mike Sullivan was, you know, was basically a fourth line guy his whole career. You know, now most people would be like, he played in the league. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, you know, and then people, he's a BU guy, you know, you know him. And I'm like, yes, he played in the league. Yes. He's a BU guy. Yes. I know him, <laughs> you know, and, but you know, he's at the point where people see him, you know, like he's like you, you know, he's got some, some salt and pepper gray going in the hair and, he seems like he's been around forever, but I mean, I remember him. He played for Boston, right? You know, end of his career, he ended up with the Bruins. Because he got a lot of stress. That's why he got in that coaching position. A few things. One, I want to underscore uh, Mike's uh, Potenza's understatement of the century 
calling McDavid fast. Um, I also want to just highlight one thing from coach Boyle. Just, this has been a theme amongst a lot of the coaches we've, we've interviewed is that willingness to, to try out new things and be willing to experiment and to kind of t- just be able to test things out. Because if you're not testing things out, you're never going to be able to like push the boundaries of, of, of what works. I do want to shift the conversation though. You, you mentioned the book and another thing coach Boyle is you're a great communicator. You're an engaging speaker. You're always a popular speaker, perform better summits. You have a knack for metaphor, even just in this conversation, feed the cats. Like that's a metaphor. You even quoted a very well-known poem. I'm curious, has improving your communication, both written and spoken, been a, a conscious practice for you? And how important do you think writing and speaking have been for you in your career? Uh, not only to grow from business perspective, but also just like making you a better coach. That's a really good question. You know, I don't, I think, I don't think speaking was as much conscious in the beginning as it was just opportunity to, to talk to players and to be around players. I, I, I honed my skills at the International Hockey Academy with Don Toot Cahoon, an, another blast from the past, but and I used to talk to groups of like six or eight kids in between their ice times at his hockey school. And I always feel like that's where I, I really learned to be a public speaker. I don't know. Um, I come from, uh, my father was a high school principal. He was, all, you know, I always remember my father kind of running assemblies and being up in front and being on the microphone. And uh, both, both of my brothers actually are pretty good. You know, they can, they can MC an event with no problem and, and get up and be able to talk. So I do think some of that is, uh, an inherited gift of gab. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. Writing, um, it's really interesting. I was lucky I had a great English teacher for whatever reason. And I think my father did it to me on purpose, to be honest, because he was able to arrange things like that because he was my high school principal. I had the same English teacher two years in a row who was probably the, the woman named Miss Bothwell, who I actually tried to find uh, maybe 10 years ago and I could not get a handle on where she was. She'd probably... She might be like in her 80s by now, but I learned to write in that class and I learned to write. My godfather was also an English teacher who I had for a year and I learned to write in his class. So um, their skills, like you said, everybody should develop their public speaking skills and everybody should develop their writing skills. I I am a world recognized expert in strength and conditioning because I wrote a book, to be perfectly honest. You know, it's like, you know, there's no money in writing books. You know, I have made not a lot of money off of functional training for sports, but like new functional training for sports is in, it might be a dozen languages by now. I mean, it's, it's in a lot of languages. It's in a lot of countries. And so being able to do those things really does make a difference. So I always encourage people to, to try to write their ideas down. I encourage people to try to speak every chance they get, you know, any opportunity you get to speak in front of a group, do it because you will get better. I, but I did, when you say, was it conscious? I can remember going to perform better and I really watched the speakers. I didn't listen to the topics, but I can remember watching uh, like Mike Clark at that time who had uh, went on to develop uh, the NASM curriculum. And, you know, I would just watch everybody. Like Mike was the first guy I ever saw with um, uh, video in his PowerPoints. And I still remember him. You know, I was like, Mike, what is the deal? And he was like, Oh, you just, you just insert the MPEG into the PowerPoint. And I was like, got to get me some of them MPEGs. Like, like, I was like, I don't know what an MPEG is. Like, what's an MPEG? How do you get one? Like, where does it come from? You know? And I remember, honestly, I remember seeing Boyd Epley use PowerPoint for the first time. Boyd Epley using PowerPoint at the NSCA convention was literally like watching somebody rub two sticks together and make fire, you know, in the caveman movies. So he's talking at the strength coach thing. And the guy next to me is literally elbowing me. He's going, it's in his computer. And I'm like, what's in his computer? He's like, the whole talk is in his computer. And I'm like, what? He's like, he's doing the whole talk out of his computer. This like, there's no slide. That time we literally had slides. You don't even like, Dave, you're way too young. Mike might remember slide decks. I'm not like sure. an overhead projector. Yeah. Overhead projector. But we <laughs> never have have like the circular slide decks with, you know, you actually had um, slides and a slide yeah, projector, yeah. click them yeah. up. And down. It, so, it, 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 yeah, it, yeah. I mean, we were doing that, and then when we could start using video, we were bringing VHS tapes with us. The first perform better seminars, Chris was toting around a VHS projector, and we were hooking the projector up to the projection system. And you know, we had camcorders. We were literally filming people with camcorders to make videos for people to see in the uh, 
in the presentations. But I remember studying the speakers and thinking, I saw Mike Wojcik talk one time on the Dallas Cowboys, and I was most fascinated by the videos. I was like, yeah, it's video in his presentation. This is unbelievable. Like, yeah, it's Cowboys guys doing the drills. And I always thought, I'm going to have, I got to get video. I got to figure out how to do this. So, you know, I can just remember like, you know, buying video cameras and trying to figure out all this stuff. So, you know, I'm actually fairly technologically savvy for a senior uh, citizen, which I am at this point in time. Uh, but a lot of that came because I wanted, I was, I wanted to be like the best presenters. I looked at the best people and said, Hey, yeah, these guys are good. They can talk, but they also have the, the technological things that um, everybody else is probably lacking. Thank, thank you so much for that answer, Coach Boyle. It just reminds me that your information can be the best in the world, but if you can't present it and communicate it effectively, it's worthless. So it's really about that balance of knowing both information and presentation. Yeah, and it's the ability to make it simple. I think one of the things I've been really good at is I can make stuff, like you said, metaphors, analogies. Uh, you know, I always think I'm the king of like the bad analogies, but um, you've got to get people to understand what you're saying. It's not, like, everybody, I always say, everybody always took that class in school with some professor who was supposed to be the best person in their field. And you sat in that class and you thought, this class sucks. This guy can't teach. This guy is brutal. Like I'm dying of boredom here from trying to listen to this guy who by based on his resume or whatever is one of the world renowned experts in this particular topic. But my God, it's, it's painful to listen to or to watch. And I always wanted to not be that guy. Like I think everybody's competitive. And I remember just, okay, if I'm going to speak, I want to be the best speaker. I mean, I remember like, you know, they, they, you get reviews, you know, you get grades and I, I look at the grades like a kid, you know, literally waiting for, you know, grades to come out at school. Like, you know, I get the grades back. I'd go through every one, like, look at all the surveys, you know, how did I get rated? You know, if I wasn't, you know, if I wasn't five out of five, why did that guy not rate me as a five out of five? Like, who was it that didn't like me? Why didn't they like me? And my wife would say, get mad at me. She goes, you focused on the two guys that didn't like you. I'm like, yeah, but I always, then I started to focus on the idea that if 10% of the people don't like me, I probably wasn't good because 10% of the people should be flat out offended after your presentation <laughs> because they're so stupid and so far behind that they're really mad and they think you're a jerk. Uh, you know, if hundred percent of the people like you, you're probably not edgy enough. Definitely a good exercise to go through as, you know, and I would say a couple things in, in my career was I had to get better at interviewing in in the beginning of my career and and so i luckily had an um someone in my family who was an hr director and i was like hey just take me through mock interviews like i i knew mike early right when i left bu for my master's i was like man i don't think i'm ready for interviews like to answer all these questions i was young and that def that exercise definitely made me better but even on the presentation side maybe it was about seven years ago that i i hired someone that was trying she helps prep executives in Silicon Valley for presentations like TED Talks and stuff like that. So we had two one-hour sessions and it was like, it was great to know from her perspective of what was on the slide and how stacked, packed with information that was on the slide. And she's like, like, hey, you gotta, you gotta come down here. Like people are stuck reading everything on your slide and they're not listening to you. And it was, it was just a really... I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Like, like it's, it's way too long. She's like, put stuff in the notes if you want to it for it to be a reference for everybody. So yeah, it's definitely beneficial in that area to well, you know who's really good yourself. Uh, Brendan Rierick's wife Jenny is really good. That's what she's doing for a living now is you know helping people with like uh, you know presentation skills and interviewing skills and all that stuff. And she's awesome. She's really really good at what she does. But you're right in terms of you know, that ability, like, uh, I can remember, I read presentation secrets of Steve jobs. You know, one of the things I always talk about, like Steve jobs would get up there and put up one slide, you know, and introduce the, the iPod and give like a mesmerizing, like a 17 minute. Like I, I watched the Steve jobs talks and I'm like, Holy shit. Like I could never do that. I need slides. Like I need to be able to turn around and, you know, anchor myself back to, to where I'm supposed to be. And he could just be up there smooth as silk, you know, for 15, 17 minutes, whatever it was with like one background slide, you know, a picture of something, you know, like, and then it was like a sunset, who knows, you know, something was probably had nothing to do with those things. So it's like, I always think like, that's why I wish, 
I'd like to do a TED talk sometime because I think that would be really challenging to try to get up and do a 20 minute talk without slides uh, because I've never done something like that. Even when I did the, did you ever see one of the perform better keynotes when I did the keynotes? I don't know if you were, I don't uh, think so, no. but I've I mean, I was keynotes. dying a thousand deaths because, you know, all of a sudden I had to get up and give like a, you know, a self-improvement talk, like a talk about me as opposed to a talk about a topic. And the first time I did it, I mean, you know, I, I probably sweated through my shirt before I even got up there. And this is, you know, like I'm looking, I'm thinking I'm 58 years old. Like, what am I doing? You know, I'm up here dying, nervous, worrying about being able to do this presentation. But I think if you're not, particularly if you're talking to a really, you know, a peer group, if you're not nervous, um, there's probably something wrong. Should be motivating in a way, you know, yeah. to, to sharpen, to stay sharp on it. There's a quote I love. It's it's from Tim Ferriss. It's a person's success in life can usually be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations he or she is willing to have. I think that can sum up presenting in a in a lot of ways. Yeah, Coach Boyle, this has been such a rich conversation. Thank you so much for for being here and talking with us. Are there any final thoughts, asks of the audience, anything else you'd like to like to say to our audience? No, I just want to say thank you, and hopefully the people that are listening are gonna keep listening to these things and keep kind of, I think the big key is if I, yeah, if I am going to finish by saying anything, it's like, keep trying to get better. Don't get comfortable with where you are because eventually at some point you're going to wake up and realize that you're doing a disservice to your athletes or to your staff or whatever it is, because you've stopped this process. It's got to be like a, a never ending quest you know, the Holy grail. I'm just, you know, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get better. And I mean, it, in all honesty, it'll drive you crazy. But um, the other thing I, another quote that I love, it said, be a 90% or cause the last 10% will drive you crazy. Like you don't have to be perfect. You just got to be good. That's a perfect place to wrap up. Thank you so much. Once again, you can find coach Boyle at, we'll include links to everything where you can find him strengthcoach.com strength coach podcast. I'm sure most of you know that platform, but we'll definitely link to everything and everything we've talked about will be in the show notes. So everyone, thank you so much for listening and uh, coach Boyle. Thanks Mike. Coach Potenza. Mike, great. Thanks Dave, for being here. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. We don't get to talk enough. So uh, I did most of the talking, unfortunately, which is typical of me. <laughs> and as always, I do all most of the listening. That's fine. Yeah, I'm here. to listen. <laughs> all right. Thanks guys. Thank you. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can find links to everything discussed, show notes, all of that stuff over at the official website of SCAF, prohockeystrength.com. Right now on the site, we have a free presentation available from Dennis Kaiser. That is from a past SCAF in-person presentation. We also have lots of new articles for free coming out on the regular. So if you train hockey players, coach hockey players, are a hockey player, please check out our website, prohockeystrength.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening.